This is CX of M Radio, the voice of customer experience professionals. This is your host, Darren Hood. Thanks for joining me again on today and a warm welcome as always to those of you who are tapping into the podcast for the first time. The world of UX is about talking about any and everything that's related to the discipline of user experience, whether it's the work, whether it's the career path, whether it's transitioning into UX education, you name it we are going to cover it. So I'm, I'm really uh, thankful. I'm very appreciative for the opportunity to be able to speak to you. Glad again that you're able to join us and, and hope that you will find something useful and beneficial wherever you are in your UX journey. We're currently talking about the topic. So you want to be a UXer where we're spending time talking about what it takes to be a UX professional what type of work we do, presenting information to to help you to look at yourself in a very objective manner and, and ask yourself, am I really cut for this position? Is it really for me? I see people all the time who who look at the output. They look at the deliverable that a UX person brings to the table and presents to the team. And they'll say, wow, I'm really interested in that. You know, and all they do is look at what we produce. They have no idea how we produced it. So if you're interested in the output, but you're not interested in the work and and even worse yet, you don't know really what the work entails, then you really don't know. Now, anybody under the sound of my voice, you have every right to pursue any field you want, but whether it's medical, whether it's sales, whether it's something associated with an MBA degree and what you could use an MBA degree four, whether it's biology, whether it's something related to project management, it really doesn't matter what a person is going after from the perspective of of career pursuits and aspirations and things of that nature. If you are looking to get into a discipline and you don't know what it takes to operate in that discipline, if you don't know what type of work people do in that discipline and you just arbitrarily say that you want to do it, that's not really the way to approach it. So this is not really just a UX thing. A lot of the things that I'm talking about right now are applicable no matter what the discipline is. So I'm a UXer, so I talk about user experience and I'm trying to present things associated with personality traits. I'm trying to present things associated with the work that we do. And I'm currently talking about different methods and methodologies. And I've got a very long list to address on tonight. So we're going to dive in pretty quickly here. We spent last week by way of very brief recap, talking about some foundational elements associated with research that people are not aware of. A lot of people say that they're interested in being a researcher, but uh, are you sure? A lot of people will see someone say, and a lot of UX practitioners are doing this incorrectly, 
They'll see a person come in and just ask someone, which button do you like? Which design do you like? Do you like the red button or the blue button? Do you like this design or that design? Okay, I'm done. I did research. Uh, no. <laughs> no, when that happened, somebody did not do research. And so we're talking about the four aspects of research, four foundational elements. And then tonight, I'm going to run really quickly through a list of different research methods and methodologies. So to recap the four from last week, you have quantitative research, which really tells you what somebody is doing or how they feel about something. And it's always bound in numbers, hence uh, quantitative quantity, the numbers. What are the numbers? What are the quantities associated with a particular sentiment or or something of that nature? It's just reduced to numbers. The issue with quantitative research is that it tells you what somebody did, but it doesn't tell you why. Enter qualitative research. Qualitative research tells you the why. That's where you get the quality answer. You you look at the the very granular components, the things that are not available to you in quantitative research at all are available through qualitative research. We also talked about two other aspects of research and all the different methods. They're either quantitative or they're qualitative, but they're also either formative research that is that is done to help form opinions and directions and strategies, or it's summative, something that's done more so at the end, which is used to derive summary associated data that that is related to the design of the work that you are doing. So again, quantitative, qualitative, formative, formative, summative. One of these four. The and if something is qualitative, it's going to be either formative or summative. If something is quantitative, it's going to be formative or summative. And we also talked about mixed methods where you are combining quantitative and qualitative. So it's important to be aware of all of these things. And again, that's what we covered last week. And we went over it really quickly and we're doing it today quickly again, because we have a really, really long list here. So we want to make sure that we are bringing these things uh, to your attention once again, especially for those who missed on last week. So that's it. Now let's cut through a quick list. Let's look at a list of things that we do. And even before we get into that, I want to talk about a framework for research and everything that I'm going to talk about after this even fits into these buckets. There's um, a framework that was created. It's called AEIOU. And this is a, an organizational framework is the way that it, that it's uh, explained uh, a really fantastic book. I'm going to refer, refer you to now about research, a book called universal methods of design, 100 ways to research complex problems, a really long, that's not even the whole title, really long title. But the thing about this is that this book presents 100 methods, methodologies, and some of them are actually more deliverable or analysis oriented. Uh, we can call them all activities. That'd probably be a good way to, to group them all together. But this book lists 100 different types of research activities that you could engage in from a design perspective. So a lot of people, you know, again, the person said, do you like the red button or the green button? That's not research. And you will not find that anywhere in this book. 
But this book talks about AEIOU. Again, it presents it as an organizational framework for research. That's exactly the way it's referred to in the book. And AEIOU, it's an acronym. It stands for Activities, Environments, Interactions, Objects, and Users. And, and so, again, it's a framework. When you're doing research, everything that you do, it's going to fall into one or more of these categories. Activities are focused on what types of things users do. Environments focus on where the users are doing what they're doing, because you have to take that into consideration with your, with your data analysis and synthesis. The interactions, what are they actually engaging with? What are the actual touch points? At what point do they engage with your system, your solution, things of that nature? You need to be aware of all of those things as well. Take that into consideration with your research, with the way, again, that you process the data. What are the objects? What are they using to engage? Not the, not the actual interaction, but what's the form factor? What are they actually using when they're engaging? Is it a phone? Is it a tablet? Is it a computer? Is it a smart refrigerator? What is it? What are they doing? Is it a is it a, a a kiosk? Is it the is it the panel in an elevator? What are they using as an object? If it's an IVR, interactive voice response, are they using a telephone? Is and is it mobile or is it is it a a standard old house phone? Some people, yes, they do still use rotary phones. What are people using? You need to be aware of the objects when you're designing and when you're researching so that you can frame your research and your design in a proper manner. And then last, the U stands for users. Who are the people associated with the work that you're doing? What are their mental models? What is going on with them? What are they trying to accomplish? What are their pain points? There's a lot of things associated with users. So when you look at research, everything in research falls into one of these five components, A-E-I-O-U. I'm not a big fan of adding things to to design processes because it just you end up with a heavy cognitive load just dealing with the work that you're trying to do but if you're trying to establish structure if you're in the business of establishing processes and you're want to go through the different process a few times to get it on your belt so you can transition to as i said in the book thinking uh, uh fast and slow you want to transition from a system one to system two mindset where you're doing things. First, you do things from a structured perspective. And the more you do it and the more you learn it, you get to the point where you're able to do things without looking at a sheet, without needing a point of reference. You just do the work. It comes naturally. It's second nature. Then you, you just start to do these things. And, and really, when you get used to doing research, you become more skilled. You don't have to look at this framework, this A-E-I-O-U. You don't have to look at it at all. But if you're just getting started, it's good to know and understand these things so you make sure you're not missing anything. You want to account for every aspect of research that you are conducting so that you can be sound and so that you can gain that trustworthy and actionable data for your users to benefit them as well as for your team and for the business as a whole. Now, this AEIOU, you'll look it up. You'll find that it was created in 1991 by a team of folks out of Chicago, if my memory serves me correctly, at a place called the Doblin Group. And, and it has grown a bit over the years. Some people have heard about it. 
Many have not, but really, really important. It's really good to sit, even to just brainstorm about how to go about research and look at it from an AEIOU perspective. Very, very beneficial today. But again, once you get to a certain point, you're not going to look back at the checklist. You're not going to need to approach things from that perspective. You just go and you execute. So that's it. Let's look at the actual work. Now, here we go. Uh, lightning, <laughs> lightning round. Thinking about it from that perspective, we are really about to go fast here. So here we go. The first method, I'm not going to mention them all. Remember, there are 100, even though only 8 to 12 get used on a normal basis. Um, there's 100 it covered in that book. And I'm just going to go over a few with you here quickly. The first one, and we have to mention this one as the first one because it's the one that most people get exposed to up front early in our careers. And it's something that it is the quickest and dirtiest method that anybody can use. Somebody already knows what I'm getting at. And that is what's known as guerrilla research. Guerrilla research is when you can just, you see people in the coffee shops and they'll just uh, uh, talk to a few people who come into the shop that they don't know and they run a design by them. They watch and see how people perform with the different tasks. They record that data, and then that data is used. It's compiled later to help inform design decisions. Now, guerrilla research can be cool. It can be it can be useful. Uh, it's quick. It's dirty. It's cheap. Uh, it does have one caveat. It does have one problem. And usually, when you research, you want to qualify your participants. You want to make sure that they meet certain or match certain personas, you don't want to just include everybody because the person that you include in research might not match the target audience that you're trying to gather data about. So when you when you conduct guerrilla research, people are just so happy to just get somebody to participate. They're never vetted out. They're never evaluated. So just be aware of that with regard to guerrilla research. It can be useful. It can be handy. You need to test something. You just grab some people in the office and you have them participate. So because some testing is better than none, uh, but you also want to make sure you take the data in guerrilla research with a grain of salt because it could easily be inaccurate, not really helpful. So keep that in mind. The next one is A-B testing. This is something that comes up a lot with stakeholders because they know what A-B testing is. Let's just take two designs. And let's compare them and see which one performs better. What a lot of people do not know about A-B testing is that's basically what it is, comparing two designs. But more specifically, A-B testing is about taking two designs, which only vary at one point. (laughs) It's not two completely different designs. It could be, yes, it could be. But from a textbook perspective, A-B testing is almost, the the two designs are almost identical. And remember, I said two. There's two, or take note, I should say. Two designs, A and B, not A, B, C, D, and E. There's A and B, and it usually only varies in one area because that's the part that the team can't decide on, (laughs) the part that, that varies. Everybody is in agreement but nobody knows what to do with this one thing or which way we should go. So they take those two variations, put them in the two designs, present them, 
and A-B testing, which you could do live on the sites in many cases, or you could just put them in front of remote usability testing participants. That's another method. You can test something. Uh, people don't have to be there with you. You could use a user Zoom or user testing or some of the other resources that are out there. Try my UI and you you conduct testing anywhere. There's no bounds, no limitations when it comes to remote usability testing, as long as the people doing the testing, the participants have the right technology, they can engage. But at any rate, back to A-B testing. With A-B testing, you present those two variations. You look at your data, which one performs better. Again, the data informs the design and you go in that direction. Hopefully, everybody doesn't follow data. Don't don't, don't fool yourself. Uh, People can get data that says that we should go with A, and they go with B anyway because of bias and because they just have an affinity and they just want to go in that direction. So don't don't think that just because you presented the right data that people are going to do what you have advised them to do. Uh, we'll tell a story when we when we go through the uh, the the research part of another in another episode. We'll talk about what happened at Snapchat with with research and and then TikTok came and took them over. And it was partly due, I guess I'm telling you now. <laughs> TikTok actually uh, just blew right by Snapchat. And we're on the verge of a, a Netflix blockbuster scenario because the hippos, the highest paid person's uh, opinion, the, the hippos in the room wanted to do something based on their bias. And they decided to ignore the data that was provided by the researchers. Yes, UX researchers are valuable, but do not overvalue yourselves. You can be overridden in a heartbeat. So don't 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 get full of yourself today. Do your job, take pride in it, be your absolute best. Don't be married to what it is that you present and, and move on because folks can make you feel really, really small, really, really fast. Now, beyond A B testing, there's what's called multivariate testing. And in multivariate testing, this is like A-B testing, except you can have three, four, five different designs, and they can vary at multiple points. So it functions similar to A-B testing. However, in the case of, of multivariate testing, you have all these different aspects, and maybe there's several points that the team can't decide on. So you put three, four, five designs out there, and you subject them to testing, and you look at what the data says, and hopefully you will go in that direction. So big difference on multivariate testing, but please know what real A-B testing is. It usually only varies in one spot. We already talked about remote usability testing. Then we come across what is one of my absolute favorites, ethnography. The 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 ability or the, the application of sitting in a user's natural environment, not taking them into a lab, not remote usability testing. You are where they live, where they work, watching them work, and you're just sitting there observing and taking notes. You might engage, but it should be very, very rare. You should just be a fly on the wall taking notes. You might have to have to ask a question about clarification if there's something you don't understand that you see, but it's usually you're in the background just taking notes and watching. You're looking at pain points. You're looking at how they how they flow during the course of the day. You're getting a tremendous understanding for how they operate. 
This is something that can take place over a matter of days. It could take place over a matter of weeks. But ethnography is a lot of fun. I've been involved with those on multiple occasions. They are very, very informative. They really help support design efforts. They're they're fantastic. Then you have, in conjunction with that, you have what's called contextual inquiry. inquiry. It's like ethnography, but you are fully engaged with the users, with the participants in a case such as this. You're still taking a lot of notes. You're still watching them work, but there's a whole lot of, of engagement, a whole lot of dialogue that's taking place. So ethnography, a lot of fun. Now, these things I mentioned, are you asking yourself, do, do these sound like things you want to do as a researcher? I heard someone say a week ago that, oh, when I do UX research, I, I don't know, I don't feel right calling myself a researcher because I'm not really doing anything. Well, then you're not doing UX research <laughs> because, again, there's a hundred different methods. And so if you're not, if you don't feel like you're a researcher and you're just asking people whether or not they like the red button or the, or the green button, no, you're not doing research. That's a glorified UX position that needs to be modified. And no big deal. Just recognize where you are and grow up. The last in the last few minutes I've got here. KPI analysis. When you know what your key performance indicators are, you can conduct research to evaluate whether or not you're meeting your KPIs. On one hand, you can observe that over time. And that, that's a, a main way and probably the, mo, the more regular uh, way to conduct KPI-related KPI research. But you can also have focal KPI analysis, where you might be looking at KPIs within a certain specific time frame, and maybe you already have that in place, or you might need to do it in a, in a controlled environment where, and that's what I'm speaking to, more of a controlled environment look at KPIs, where you're you're getting some of the same data, but you're may, you may be looking at it a different way, and that calls for you to bring it into a controlled environment and conduct your research. Biometric research, and this is really our last one for today. Biometric research is where you can actually attach mechanisms to your test participants. And a lot of times people can't tell you that they like something. They can't tell you that they're stimulated by something. So what happens is the devices that you put on the people to measure them from a biometric perspective, it'll let you know if their pupils are dilating. It'll let you know about the the way that electricity is being conducted through their skin as they interact. The it can, it can measure brain waves so you can understand what those psychological responses are that maybe they don't know and cannot tell you. A company out there called Toby, that's T-O-B-I-I, is one of the leaders in this field. Uh, they've really made a lot of the equipment very, very affordable. I highly recommend checking Toby out, going to their website, getting in touch with them, getting a demo, the ability to bring biometric research into your UX operation is priceless. It will give you access to information that you never would have otherwise. So this is all the research methods I'm going to cover today. Again, does this sound like something you want to do? Are you sure you want to be a UXer? Are you sure you want to be a UX researcher? <laughs> just take a good solid look but folks that is all the time we have for today thanks for joining me again today time to sign off this is darren hood the host of the world of ux happy uxing everybody 
Thanks for joining us for this session of CX of M Radio. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit cxofm.org for more resources.